Hello and welcome to the School of Surgery podcast on Airway Trauma. I'm joined today by Craig Morris, an intensive care consultant here at Derby Hospital. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Morris. So just to run through what we'll be talking about during this podcast, we'll be dealing with airway management of trauma patients with potential spinal instability, hemodynamic shock. We'll be discussing surgical cricothyroidotomy and some of the induction agents used in shocked trauma patients. So Dr. Morris, we'll get straight into it. What I want to start by talking about is particular challenges that you might face or your colleagues when you're undertaking intubation for a critically ill patient. So somebody who might have hemodynamic instability, for example, or might have uh, spinal immobilization in place. If you could just talk us through um, some of the challenges from an airway side uh, that you face in those sort of situations. Particular issues that we might meet, well, uh, spinal instability would be fairly uh, early encountered uh, and a bit of a problem. Um, inadequacy of uh, ventilation and, and sorting out oxygenation, uh, hemodynamic instability from the various causes around trauma. I think by definition that the trauma patient that, that requires air, airway uh, intervention um, are a, a, typically a high energy category, usually with a degree of head injury, uh, which is why, uh, why they're going to need some degree of airway support. So they are a high risk group and I, I think pragmatically they're in the real way of delivering emergency care is to assume they have the spinal injury uh, and manage the spine um, cautiously uh, and then get the clearance done afterwards. There's no real place for clinical clearance prior to intubation. Uh, And I think in practical terms, it's not a major concern. Um, That's not being blasé about it, missed um, unstable spinal fractures. We know have worse neurological outcomes, although interesting, a lot of that data is pre-ATLS and pre um, uh, quite rightly so, uh, pre-massive uh, emphasis on, on keeping their spine immobilised. But clearly uh, nobody would choose to manipulate a spine that's potentially unstable. So I think uh, cautious uh, intubation, uh, in many ways, just being mindful of the possibility of an unstable vertebral injury uh, often is the, the thing that stops um, causing further damage. Techniques to secure the airway, um, uh, this is a bit, a bit of an ongoing controversy area for discussion, but most um, series, um, large series from the States with, with trauma, um, certainly demonstrate the safety of a first-line uh, conventional rapid sequence induction as opposed to other more advanced uh, techniques, for instance, uh, going straight to fibre optic or going straight to uh, cricothyroid outside the setting of a salvage airway type situation so certainly within uk practice um the immobilization of the spine and then use of a conventional rapid sequence induction with a non-titrated pre-calculated dose of induction agent neuromuscular blocking agent and then uh, insertion of a tube is is probably the way to go most clinicians uh, would use a, a conventional laryngoscope. There is some data that electively using a McCoy uh, laryngoscope and a bougie may cause less spinal manipulation. Um, it's easy to imagine why that might be the case. And now with video laryngoscopes, there's almost no need for neck manipulation at all, and, and, and many units have these uh, routinely available. So, so those are both uh, fairly uh, legitimate techniques to secure the airway. Uh, hemodynamic instability as a, as a specific concern, I'll, I'll not, uh, we can perhaps talk about the causes of that, but f- uh, 
a blanket shocked patient is, is a major concern. Again, a lot of these controversies, I think, have largely been historical and resolved. Certainly in my practice, when, when we looked at a review around use of ketamine in this setting, that was quite a controversial agent, uh, despite his very favourable hemodynamics. And it was controversial, really, because of the presence, potential presence of head injury. That controversy has largely been addressed, um, and uh, most of the data demonstrating elevations of intracranial pressure with ketamine use were in spontaneously breathing subjects who uh, increased their uh, carbon dioxide and tidal carbon dioxide concentrations, um, which with controlled ventilation shouldn't happen. So in summary, I think uh, pick an induction agent that's hemodynamically stable. I do do like ketamine, um, but there there are um, reasonable case could be made for thiopentone propofol uh, and i think the, the 70s data from schaefer around the time when propofol was introduced it demands very healthy respect and dose reduction and i don't th- personally don't think builds itself well into a rapid sequence at all uh, and the use of atomidate for various reasons has, has declined substantially so i think i think you are left with ketamine in an advanced shocked patient Choice of neuromuscular blocking agents. I don't want this to be a, a recipe for for anaesthesia, but um, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to keep talking about it. Yeah, neuromuscular blocking agent. Uh, if you look at the last uh, Cochrane review on this, between uh, suximethonium and, and rocuronium, actually came down in favour of suximethonium um, in the, in the case of failure to intubate. This might be a slightly different situation in that if you can't intubate this patient, you're not going to wake them up. So you're committed really to proceeding to uh, a further technique, in which case use of rocuronium doesn't seem quite so uh, irrational um, for, compared to the elective setting. And with that, I'll stop talking about the individual drugs. That was very informative. Thank you very much, Dr. Morris. Um, so just for the simple surgical trainee, if we want to... Uh, do a crash laparotomy or even a fulracotomy, do we need to worry about the induction of an anaesthetic with regards to our patient's blood pressure suddenly dropping? Sounds like not necessarily. There are agents out there and the anaesthesia should be able to be managed without causing significant blood pressure drops in patients who are already hemodynamically unstable. Is that correct? Uh, I, th- I think it is a, a real issue. Um, I think some, frankly, quite um, difficult to fathom choices are made around drugs. Um, people talk about stable cardiac anaesthetics. Having seen this being used, for instance, in the cardiothoracic setting with a patient who's been optimised for ischemic heart disease or, or valvular surgery, and they're, the, and they're a sort of high-dose opiate technique, phenylpiperidine-type opiate technique, is undoubtedly very stable. It's an absolute disaster in a shocked patient where, by and large, the only compensation they have is through the sympathetic mechanism. And then to give an, a, a huge dose of a, an agent with a massive vagotonic action is often close to, uh, to, to being a fatal event. So it, it is an issue, um, but, the, but you also have to, I think, balance that very quickly uh, against a patient with a very high risk, potentially, of dying, um, who may, uh, and we know the rates of awareness are far higher in this particular setting, 
who is then going to be subjected to all manner of, of really quite unpleasant procedures. So up to a point, I think for, for ethical and moral reasons, you have to be confident this patient's asleep uh, and then make up the haemodynamics afterwards uh, rather than the other way around. And, and certainly historically it's been the case that anaesthesia has perhaps been cut back on or even omitted um, while trying to preserve the haemodynamics. And, and, and I would struggle with that. And certainly data recently from the National Audit projects would suggest that um, awareness in this category of patients is quite common. The beauty of ketamine is you can give a dose, it works within 30 seconds and you actually get about 20 minutes cover with loss of awareness, which is pretty helpful that this could be the without being too melodramatic, it could be the patient's last moments on earth uh, and he deserves really to not have awareness. Very helpful, thank you very much. So we'll move on to a, a slightly different scenario. So Again, you're the maybe the anaesthetist on call and um, as a, a trauma patient in A and E. This time, the patient has a significant maxillofacial trauma or perhaps a burns patient. What are the indications, practically, sort of from your perspective, for an emergency surgical cricothyroidotomy? All right, thank you. That's, that's a, a very searching question and one I'm just trying to get the right answer to. I, I, I think, um, yeah, any situation where you might reasonably expect uh, conventional intubation to fail, that's not trying to play word games back at you. Um, so I think maxillofacial trauma in many ways often makes the situation easier. I would, I would have a quick look and see if we have any imaging. For instance, a mandibular fracture that looks truly awful but is, is fractured in two places will almost certainly have a free float in middle section and will often be extremely easy to intubate in direct contrast to potentially a dislocated um, mandibular condyle or something where where you can't displace any of the structures and intubation might be a disaster so i'd I'd have a look and see see whether i think intubation is feasible it's also worth bearing in mind trauma along the neck may have distorted the larynx a tube physically might not get across the larynx that might be a difficult call to make before you start burns very difficult very controversial as as a very good talk um, by Jonathan Handy at uh, a meeting recently looking at a lot of the traditional signs for instance soot, voice changes things like that, a very very poor predictive value I think we certainly intubate a lot less. Uh, I think the principle that the airway might swell and you might not be able to intubate later is is a fair one, but I think that's possibly been overplayed. And I certainly think we observe patients a lot more than we used to. But if you're not going to intubate them, I think the onus really is on you to make sure they're in a monitored environment and ultimately that you are confident you can pick up the pieces if if you've made a, a, a poor call on that. The other setting clearly would be if you've attempted intubation and and fail. The salvage situation at that point then would be very much to maintain oxygenation, um, not necessarily in intubation, but um, uh, and that would generally come back to simple manipulations like uh, attempting to, to jaw thrust if the, the jaw is still intact and things like that. Uh, the laryngeal mask is, is a very interesting example of how UK and US practice evolved, appeared very early in UK, failure to intubate algorithms and has been a lifesaver for, for countless uh, kind of intubate can't ventilate type scenarios uh, so a laryngeal mask would be used very early on to at least salvage the air, the the airway and then a call made really whether you could intubate through a laryngeal mask which is a very legitimate technique or move to a more formal uh, cricothyroid and then and then more formal airway to secure it 
So I think our use of cricothyroidotomy in the UK has, has been a lot less than it has uh, in the States, particularly, but it remains a legitimate uh, technique if, in, in those sort of circumstances we've just discussed. Sticking with that theme, in the unlikely event that a surgical airway is indicated, so a cricothyroidotomy, what are the main practical barriers for proceeding with this option? So the, the scenario might be a trauma patient in a resus department with an anaesthetic trainee and a couple of members of the trauma team in A&E around. For whatever reason, intubation's failed, not possible. This patient needs a surgical airway. In that uncontrolled setting, as opposed to an anaesthetic room, or in an elective case, what are the main practical difficulties could you foresee with trying to provide a surgical airway? Uh, I'm delighted to hear you asking a question like that because it shows, I think, the insight to to the human factors and the environment that would happen uh, in that sort of airway catastrophe. Uh, and I think in many ways a, a surgeon who's used to handling a, a knife on a regular basis is going to be far better placed than an anaesthetist to, to potentially salvage the situation. There's a lot of things will happen in this scenario. You've got an anaesthetist who's, who's been brought down to look after the airway and has failed. And the time that you recognise failure will be a long way down the line. I know we encourage people to call early, but you will want to intervene and, and, and go for cricothyroid access when you have a patient who is, is rapidly desaturating, often becoming bradycardic, and, and frankly, often peri-arrest, and because you will have to admit absolute failure. You will then be forced to abandon the top end because the airway cannot be maintained at the top end, and you're going to ask an anaesthetist to, to stop attempting to deliver oxygen at the top end, and that is not in their psyche at all. So it's it's all of these things I think that make it the the decision to proceed a very difficult one to make and you're coming at it on the back of profound failure your role and, and your whole raison d'etre has, has just landed in a heap so people don't come at it from a position of strength so it, it is it is quite a frightening place we know from NAP four um, it is almost pointless to start sticking needles through the cricothyroid membrane I was delighted to hear you talking about uh, um, sort of knives and, and making holes and really you need something through the cricothyroid bigger than about four millimeters which can connect to conventional pressure ventilation bag ventilation not pressure jetting okay. which will allow not only oxygenation but ventilation at reasonably conventional pressures that is what we're talking uh, and like that is not a tracheostomy and, and you've been absolutely correct in your, your terminology and it's good to, but but people's thinking sometimes so if people reaching for 14 gauge cannulas and jetting techniques um, really need to be uh, restrained uh, and likewise um, people getting a, a, a tracheostomy kit uh, probably aren't going to help you um, it is a, a cricothyroid puncture with a blade getting a an above a four millimeter sized uh, tube in be that a, a formal kit there are needle over cannula type kits which are intuitively more attractive to anesthetists but if you're a surgeon then a, a an incision a bougie and a very small tube um, are perfectly legitimate options and make the call early on that note another very difficult question i think completely reasonable and you sort of already answered this but it would be reasonable for the surgeon to attempt this procedure on the back of what has happened um, with the intubation. The surgical trainee may have never done this procedure before. Likewise, for 
the anaesthetist as well. Do you have any tips or suggestions on who should perform it in this sort of situation? Yeah, and, and I think it's important to be absolutely upfront about this. I, you know, I've, I've put in many percutaneous trachies I, I, and I've done cryothyroid access around fibre optic intubations for airway anaesthesia, um, but I've never done the procedure in the heat of the moment and, and wouldn't sit here and claim to, and, and I'd be quite happy if it stays like that until I retire. So the person who should do it, I think, is the one, in many ways, who steps forward. Um, the person who is prepared to recognise the situation and act definitively. Um, rather than the person who's coerced into it and, and potentially you know, the, the, the most senior person in the team. Like many uh, rare procedures that need to be performed in a time-critical fashion, it's a very similar philosophy, I think. You, you get the person who's, who's best able to do it. Uh, and in many ways that, that will often be a surgeon because it is intuitive to you to pick up a knife in the nicest possible way. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Morris. That's been... Very interesting, very informative. Thank you for your time.